What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Dr. Devin Walker, and I'm here with Javier Wallace, and we are Black with Blue Passports. This podcast explores the impact that international travel has on Black Americans' pursuit of liberty and racial justice. This podcast is sponsored by DDCE Global at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from the World Walker Foundation and Black Austin Tours. Welcome. Excited to be here. It's me and your boy, Big Javi. So yeah, man, this is our podcast. This is the first one we're getting started. Man, you want to go ahead and briefly introduce yourself? Uh, what's up, everybody? It's your boy, Javier Wallace. I always tell people straight out of Austin, Texas, because I really, really am um, down here on the third coast. But if I'm being quite honest with everybody, my dad is from Panama, and that's a huge piece of who I am. So I consider myself a black man from Panama, but right here from Austin, Texas as well. And yeah, right here trying to get with y'all today. Oh, of course. I went to, I graduated from the highest, from the college located on the highest of seven hills in Tallahassee, Florida, the premier historically black college in the United States of America. And I would say even the world, Florida Agricultural Mechanical University. Yes. Uh, Rattlers. Rattlers, put them on the map. Yeah, played football at FAMU for five years on the offensive line. Uh, now doing the PhD at the University of Texas at Austin, right here in the city where I'm born and raised at. But I represent FAMU through and through orange and green. For sure, for sure. All right. Uh, my name is Devin, Dr. Walker for, for the undergrads, which is a new identity and cool. Um, from Los Angeles, California. Went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Badgers. Really cold, really white but it was a great overall experience. Uh, pushed me to travel a lot and I had to get the hell out of there. And yeah, ultimately what kind of led me down here to Javi City, ATX. Um, so uh, yeah, man, we here, man. We work together at the Division of Diversity and Community Engagement for UT Austin. Uh, we run a department called the Office of Global Leadership and Social Impact. And clearly both of us have a huge interest in travel, not only personally, but professionally and also interested in the history of Black folks in America traveling outside this country and just the, the linkages between the diaspora in general. So in many ways, that's, what, that's what's the undercurrent of this here podcast, at least from my perspective. What about you? No, the same. I think it's super important to have these conversations about what does it mean to be a global citizen or what does it mean to be beyond your boundaries as far as like nations are concerned. Um, I think especially for me, you know, coming from a perspective where I have lineage outside of the borders of the United States of America, it's important for me to engage in this conversation because I don't think mobility is equal across the board or this idea of global citizenship is equal across the board. So I think it's important to engage in these discussions. And I think this is a space to bring in all people from different experiences that are probably listening mostly from the United States that have the opportunity to go abroad and go beyond their boundaries. But like all of the nuances, all of the challenges, all of the stuff that, you know, the, not even the, the, the stuff that's not pretty, I think are important to talk about. So I think this space is, is built for that and those yeah. type of conversations. That's right. You know, I, um, I oftentimes think about like some of the early black folks who are traveling, probably many of whom we don't even know their names. I just think of like the, some of the most famous folks like Ida B. Wells, right? When I think of like a black traveler, she's probably the first person that comes to my mind historically. And then also Du Bois, 
And then, you know, of course, after that, you get into to way more people. But I always felt like, man, there was this interesting opportunity to see beyond what America in many ways has provided us, right? And as you talked about like this mobility, you know, in many ways, the history of this country has put all its powers to be, to limit what black folks can do, what they can see, ultimately just ultimate social control, right? Whether that be on stealing them from the original lands, you know, cap capturing them, putting them on a boat, and then on the plantation, right, this idea that you needed a pass to leave your plantation and that there's these folks on patrol coming out, checking black folks, like, where's your plantation you're supposed to be at? If you don't have your pass, you got to go back. And really how that mindset is still so with us today, right, in terms of what areas are certain black kids allowed to be in compared to not, it reminds me, um, man, I was in China a couple years ago. I think this is what, 2014. That might have been the year, I think that was the year that this um, little black girl was like slammed. She went to a pool and she was slammed by a cop in Dallas, basically because they called the cops on the black kids because they were swimming in the pool that they weren't supposed to be in again, right? Like no mobility, can't access this pool. And the cops came and they ended up slamming this 13, 14 year old girl on the sidewalk and it was brutal. And I was in China and it was all over the news, right? It was like everywhere. And I thought that was mad interesting how still similar to like the Cold War, man, you know, the black experience in America is always used as, a, we could use the term propaganda, but to highlight the inequities within America by other countries who are oftentimes seen as American rivals, right? Whether it was Russia in the Cold War or most recently China, always putting on, on blast like how America treats black folks. And for me, like that's that connection between like the plantation and that girl, just still like not being allowed freedom to move your body. So that's one of the things I really want to explore in this in this podcast is for the folks who do get the opportunity to step outside of this country, right? Like how, what does it do to us? How does it impact us? I've oftentimes heard the term uh, liberation, but then I know we also want to complicate some of these things, right? And, and disrupt some of these uh, narratives around uh, Black American travel. So that's something I'm really excited about for this podcast. What, what about you? I mean, the same thing, you know, I'm, I'm really here for the disruption because, I mean, I feel like there's so many things just on what you said alone that I want to bring to the conversation, you know, especially as we get people to kind of understand where we're going with this podcast and, and what they can expect from us. But I, I definitely, you know, something you said about, you know, being outside of the country as a Black person from the United States with the ability to, to travel. And, you know, like seeing this propaganda about the United States and how it treats its Black people in China. But then, you know, when you said that, I'm immediately thinking about places like Panama or places like, in particular, like Latin America, where you, where you will get a lot of this same news or propaganda that happens in the United States to Black people. And it's usually like, because I lived in Panama for like five years or six years. I still consider myself living there now, even though I'm not physically there. And we'll get all this stuff on the news when these things happen to African-Americans, primarily in the United States. And we usually see it and it's promoted to us as, wow, look what the life is like for Black people in the United States. And we have to, and they show it to us like, at least you don't live there. And it's so much that we experience, and I think so many other people experience as non-African-American Black people, particularly in these spaces, that the, the propaganda is so strong it's used to cover up the abuses and the racism that these own governments have towards their own black people 
in their country. And it's like, what? You know, so we internalize those things. And I think, and then, and then I hear people be like, when I was in Panama, you know, I hear a lot of people, particularly, you know, from the United States coming down and be like, you know, I love it here because there's no racism. I'm like, where? How? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> like, because they're not showing police beating people on TV. That don't mean they're not doing it. That don't mean it's not happening. Just because it's not happening to you doesn't mean it's not happening to people. So I think like this is a space, at least from my perspective, where I think I have a lot of privilege from being on both ends of the border with citizenship in two countries instead of just one and passports in both countries, but limited mobility, particularly with one country, the passport that I have, which almost is, I can't go nowhere with that passport. Panamanian passport? Yeah, I have a Panamanian passport. I can't go nowhere. Yeah, I was gonna say that's, man, that's one of the most interesting things why ultimately, and we'll probably get into this, why I wanted to do that passport drive is like, Americans oftentimes don't realize the power of the passport, man, and how it's not equal around the world, right? Like what that document means, a Panamanian passport, I'm not familiar, but based off what you just said, it don't equal what an American passport equal. I'm not going nowhere. <laughs> I mean, I can go to Cuba without any problems. And I've done that on that passport, but I can't go um, nowhere. About two stamps in there? Costa Rica, Colombia, and I wouldn't even go to Colombia anymore on a Panamanian passport. For the simple fact how Panama how Colombians and Panamanian immigration officials treated me when I went first going into Colombia with a Panamanian passport. You know, the guy at the at the aduanas or the immigration, when you come in, he's looking at my passport and he's looking at me. He's like Panameño. No, Panameño no viajan aquí. And he's like, Panamanians don't come here for tourism. What you mean Panamanians don't come here for tourism? You know, so he go asking me all these questions. And then when I come back to Panama, to the own, the country where that issued me the passport, they pulled me into a separate room, a complete separate room, coming back into the country. And they start this whole interrogation process for me. And then, and they say the same thing, the Panamanian migratory officials say the same thing the Colombian migratory officials say. They tell me Panamanians don't travel to Colombia for tourism. And they're asking me, what was I doing? What was the purpose of my travel in Colombia? On my Panamanian passport coming back into the country that issued me the passport, which I'm a citizen, but I know that they read it because I'm black. And they and so they automatically assumed that I was doing something illicit or wrong in Colombia because I was Panamanian in that space. But I had been to Colombia like four times, literally before this, all of my US passport. Never had any question by the Panamanians or the Colombians going or coming when I use my US passport. So my Panamanian passport, like, it's in the drawer. <laughs> I'm, I'm also, what I'm also reading is that it's not that Panamanians don't travel to Colombia, it's that when black Panamanians travel to Colombia, they must be up to something illicit, wrong. There's loads of Panamanians that go to Colombia, loads of Panamanians. But like you're saying, they were alluding to what I'm saying, but like I'm saying, it's because a black person was going to Colombia from Panama. And that's not what black people do because in our own borders, we construct black people to only have so much mobility. And access to another country mm -hmm. is not one of those things. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's similar here, man. When I'm traveling abroad and if I'm on a certain plane going somewhere, where I, you know, random, right? Like I'm in a plane last year, uh, you know, Julissa and I, my fiance, we were going from Beijing to Sanya. Sanya is like a, Sanya is like a, a little island, a Chinese island, right? So, of course, we're the darkest skinned people. I'm the darkest skinned person on the plane, right? Besides Julissa. So, you know, it's a problem, right? <laughs> But yeah, you know, folks is looking and they're just kind of like, it almost, in all of my travels, I've always felt like when I'm, especially if I'm not in like Europe, if I extend beyond that, right? If I'm somewhere different, somewhere where traditionally we're not seen as supposed to travel, 
folks would think I'm famous, an actor, an athlete. It kind of goes back to like when I felt like when I was on a college campus, like, why are you here? Like, what, what did you do to be so exceptional for a Black person that you made it over here, right? How are you sharing space with me? Like, and so that's always been very interesting, man. But, but something you said that I, I really, I think is going to be another undercurrent of this podcast, and we're not always going to agree, um, which is great, but how global white supremacy, right? It creates the conditions for Black Americans in some, sometimes when we travel to actually have access to privilege. And I feel like the, the main one is this passport, right? That, that main piece is like, man, that, is a, that, is, that document means something. It gives you privilege. It gives you power. And I know when I've pulled it out in other countries, I've felt this immense privilege and power in certain experiences I've had where I'm like, man, this, this document almost makes me feel slightly above the law. I'm like, man, this must feel like, must be what it's like to feel a little bit of whiteness in this country. But I definitely want to explore that, especially when we talk to a lot of our students. Um, that's one of the groups that we want to interview is college students who've gone abroad, how it's impact them and um, impact their sense of self. And a lot of them do wrestle with this, this aspect of being American abroad, right? Because oftentimes in this country, we see ourselves as Black or whatever it is, your identity first, if you're not a white person. But you go abroad and you oftentimes start getting framed as American, American. But I also know for you, sometimes due to your skin color, you say that is something, sometimes your experience, and that's also different at times. Yeah, most definitely. I think what, what my biggest difference is, I think in most people's experiences, particularly like Black Americans, is the one to mold how I travel. You know, like I got uh, one of the companies I founded, Blackpackers, is where we talk about this idea of disrupting the narrative of what a backpacker is. Because usually when we talk mm -hmm. about backpackers, we associate it with like dirty white young people. <laughs> y'all can get, y'all can, you know, put Twitter on me for that one, for saying that. But that's like a big popular, you know, image. And we were like, no, black people can do the same thing. So the way we travel, the way I was traveling was completely outside of like, the beaten path of tourism. So some spaces, people were not expecting no. tourists in this area. So then they read me as a local. And I haven't traveled extensively in Africa, on the continent, or in Asia. Most of my travels been like in Latin America and the Caribbean. So where there's a lot of people that look like me in these places. So when people see me, they don't automatically assume United States. They assume Negro de Colón, or Black person from Riawajo in Panama City, or black person when I was in Colombia from Choco or a black person from the Caribbean islands that's that's doing business here. So my experiences have largely, because they're outside of like the tourist realm in, in spaces where black people aren't seen as like not supposed to or not, in, not supposed to be in this space, I oftentimes get read like somebody who's from there. And that really shapes my entire experiences mm. in these places. And even in Europe, you know, like with my physical features, I'm dark, a dark-skinned black person who's oftentimes thought to be a person from West Africa. It happened to me in South Africa. People were asking me if I was Nigerian. I didn't know what Nigeria is. I know what Nigeria is. But you're like, well, I'm not Nigerian. from Austin, Texas. And then when I'm in, I was in, in Germany, a woman walked up to me on the street and she asked me, she said, are you Black American or are you African? And I answered the question as I was, a Black American. And she was like, oh, good because y'all are the ones that we like. You're not like the African people that are here. And you know, when she said that to me, 
I understood that people are reading me not as a black American or American right away. And because my passport is not visible at this moment. I'm not going through customs. I'm not at the cruise port. I'm not at duty free. I'm in the city. I'm on the subway. And I'm seeing black African people begging are in very marginalized positions because of their journeys of migration. And people are associating me with them. And people are reading me as them. So when people are not sitting by me on the subway in Berlin or clutching their purse, on the sub on the streets of Hamburg, it's not because I'm American, it's because they think I'm African migrant that they have a lot of apathy for in those places. So for me, because of my blackness, because of my skin complexion, because of my physical features, I think in the places I usually go in the way that I travel, it's, it, my experience is gonna be completely all over the place because the way people read me. And I think yeah. we have to take those things into consideration yeah. too. Yeah, that's real because I mean, obviously we look quite different. I'm what, five, seven, light skin. You about six four, brown, darker skin, and yeah, both identify as Black Americans in this country, right? But when we step out, yeah, I think we are experiencing the world quite different. And I also think some important that you said is like where we've been. I so all of my travels, I've been quite a bit in Europe. I don't want to say quite a bit on the continent of Africa because it's so big and expansive. But about seven, I think seven countries, seven or eight countries there, and then quite a bit in Asia, and only like two or three countries in the Caribbean, and nothing in. Um, the continent of South America. So I haven't necessarily grappled, grappled with how I'm going to experience Blackness in those spaces because really I haven't been there. Um, so my experiences in many ways probably are based off my largest experience abroad is being in Korea. And as you were talking, I was thinking back about my own experience and how, you know, every time you go abroad, right, you, you make these like vast generalizations about the world because it's something you experience and you don't know enough about the world to actually realize like how context specific your experience is, right? So I think about that with our undergrads when they come back, they're like, oh, you know, this is the way it is or this is the way it is. And it's like, man, you've been outside the country one time, like chill on the philosophizing and just be. But even me, who's been out the country hella times, when I just heard you spoke, it, it made me think about how context specific some of my experiences have been. So like in Korea, I was an English teacher, Song Sing Nim. First of all, that teachers get a lot of respect out there. So just rolling, because I didn't have like a military buzz cut, everybody knew I was a teacher in Korea. And there's there just respect for teachers. So you got a, a lot of just innate respect, which was dope. But two, they only take um, teachers from certain countries, right? So in many ways, and there, there's tons of people in Africa who speak English as their first language. But in many ways, a lot of those countries don't have pipelines to Korea to teach because for a Korean perspective, like no, Americans speak English, English people speak English, and we let some South Africans, but even the South Africans, they let them mostly white. And they will blame it on like, oh, you're not, you have, you speak with an accent, but really it was deeper than that. It was like, nah, we don't want that many black people in our country. And I think because people associate English with whiteness and like mm -hmm. the best type of English with whiteness. And that's something that I used to, that I always grapple with again, like in my experiences in Panama, and I don't want to go too deep into that, but like the way English is spoken in Panama by a large segment of the population, like my family who are generationally, historically English speakers, and pan on because of issues of migration. Like my grandparents in their 90s, they prefer to speak English because that's their native tongue, not Spanish. They went to Spanish school, so they're speaking Spanish. But the type of English they speak, people in Panama will call Chombo English 
or Caribbean English, Owadi Wadi. And it's very discriminate, discriminated against. So even in Panama, like we'll see the way, like I, my English is valued. And that's the way I was able to work in so many spaces in Panama, teaching English because of my accent. Mm-hmm. They'll be in like the, the, the biggest example that people will give, like even in the call centers, talking about capitalism and apartheid globally. We have a lot of call centers, American call centers in Panama, right? So you call an LG, you're probably talking to somebody in Panama City, not down the street. And they were like, oh my God, you get a job in the call center quick. And I'm like, why? They're like, oh, because you talk English like an American. You don't talk chumbo English. And I'm like, what is that? They say, 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 what do you call the stuff that you drink that comes from the fountain? I said, water. Yes, it's water. See, but the chumbo people say wata. And you don't say wata. And I'm like, uh-huh. Oh, my cousins, when they were learning English, they would police each other. They would be like, stop talking chumbo English. If you're going to talk English, talk it correctly. So they're basically saying, stop talking like your father. Stop talking like your grandmother and start talking like these American people. And, and, and I've heard and teachers, have parents told me that when I worked in schools with their kids. They're like, oh my, you have such good English to be Panamanian. I'm surprised. I thought, you, you know, <laughs> you don't speak Wadi Wadi. I'm like, man, get out of here. Good. Man, when I was, um, so I was applying for this job when I was in Korea. So after I spent my like year and a couple months in Korea, I went to Southeast Asia. I was backpacking by myself for like three months. Incredible experience. When I finished, I was like, man, I don't know what I'm going to do. Am I going to go, you know, you could teach in, I mean, you could go like um, live in Australia before you're 30, do that like year long work visa. So I was thinking about doing that, thinking about going back to America. And ultimately, I went back to Korea and I didn't have work, you know, so I was on a tourist visa. So I was trying to like reach out to all my networks and try to get, you know, under the table work, what we would call, but shit, I was an illegal immigrant at that point. If we're going to keep it, call it spade a spade, right? Throw that label on me, right? Yeah, I was an illegal immigrant. Not that I would use that term to describe anybody in this country, but just to redefine what it looks like, your boy. Um, and I was on this job interview and this lady was like, um, this was in person. I'd already talked to her on the phone and we're talking and the conversation is going good. And then, you know, she got a little more comfortable. She's like, you know, I'm so happy to like, see you, you know, you're, you're light skin. I'm like, huh? And she's like, oh no, no. Because on the phone, when I talk to you, you sound like black, like black man, you sound like a black man. But when I see you, 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 your skin is light. So it's good for me and and I can find you a job. And I'm like, I pause and there was this other lady who spent, she had spent like a year in America. So she had enough context about the way race operates in America to look at my face. I'm like, what the hell? She's trying to like mitigate the situation. But again, man, even over there, right? It's, it's the same, it's like, what kind of English do you speak, right? Because if you get associated too much with the black part of English, then there's no job for you, right? Or, but, but for me, although I might sound like a black American to her, the fact that I was light skinned, I still had access, right? So even, even in these places where you feel like, all right, you are privileged and you do experience a level of privilege that you don't in America as a black person, anti-blackness is global, right? And, and you're going to experience that and have to navigate that any and everywhere. But ultimately, man, I would say that tra- I, I, I do use the term liberation to describe my travels. I've always used that word. What is a word that you would use as we kind of round out this first episode, man? If you had to pare it down into just one or two words, kind of putting you on the spot with this one. Everybody, I, I will I will say that I will agree with you. I think travel has been liberatory for me, emancipatory for many ways to be able to see and experience the world in the body that I am, in my, in my body and how it's read in different spaces 
and, it, and it's really shown me that I, we have, particularly as black people, people of African descent, have more things in common than we have in difference. And even in only if, it, it, no, I'm not even gonna say that. We just have more things in common than we have in difference. So it's been emancipatory, liberatory for me. Emancipatory, that's it powerful. Has, you know, it has, it has, it has. I mean, it's full of privilege. The blue American passport has saved my life literally, I think countless times especially in Panama, being pulled over by the police. And the only thing that really saved me those times was when I decided to pull my, my American passport, which I used to carry in my pocket. And this is the, that's the reason to this day, like if you see my American passport, it has no emblem on the front. It's just a blue book because it's been, the gold has been rubbed off in my pocket. And it's only been rubbed off in my pocket because I had to have it on me all the time to have some type of decency in life. Because when I would get pulled over in Panama, I would have I would pull out my US passport for them to leave me alone, for them to yeah. put the guns down, literally put the guns down. Um, so they would read me as something else. So it's been liberatory, emancipatory for me to be able to continue living physically or not being detained, but also realize on the opposite end, if I would have pulled out my Panamanian light blue passport, that I would be just like so many other people in that situation, jailed, detained, beat for no reason, um, other than just being the black person that I embody. But I tell people all the time, I can hold both of those passports in my hand, but what never changes is me, never changes is me. But you think about me differently, depending on which one I hand to you. I mean, when you said that, you said you put out the passport to, for them to put the guns down, I immediately thought about the numerous times, and I still, man, I'm, I'm a fuck. I graduated with my PhD three years ago. I still carry my student ID with me, still. I've always carried a student ID with me for the last 15 years because in so many situations, that will mean more than my driver's license. She's like, oh, look, I'm a student. And I hate, I hate that it is that way, but it is that way. Um, but man, this has been dope. So man, just to, just to set forth a little bit of what, what's gonna happen on the next couple episodes, man, we got some, uh, some dope guest speakers in. We got Dr. Leonard Moore coming in. Um, we're gonna have Dr. Peniel Joseph. We're gonna get some woman scholar who knows all about Ida B. Wells. I'm not so sure who that is. We're gonna get her to talk about her experience, man. We're gonna have a bunch of students on. We're gonna have Thais Moore come in and talk about how traveling abroad impacts her fly students and a little bit more about her fly around the world initiative. So we got a bunch of dope guests. Some are gonna be students, some are gonna be industry leaders, and some are also gonna be maybe historians or academics who can in many ways put into context some of the history of African-American travelers um, and what we've learned from them and how maybe their experiences in many ways have pushed Black American thought and our fight for racial justice at home and abroad. Um, so those are some things that uh, to look forward to in the, in the coming weeks. That's all I got, Brother Javi. No, I'm looking forward to. It. I think it's going to be a great, a great series full of a lot of information and knowledge. And just hope everybody who's listening or watching continues to come out and support and share, share, share with everybody, but share your experiences yeah. as well. So I'm looking forward to this. It's a dope. It's going to be dope. For sure. All right, y'all. We'll see you next week, week two. All right, brother. Yo. Thank y'all for checking out another episode of Black with Blue Passwords with Javier Wallace and Dr. Devin Walker. Make sure y'all follow us and check us out on social media at DDCE Global, World Walker Foundation, Black Austin Tours, Afro-Latino Travel, and keep this conversation going. A special shout out goes out to our production team, Sophia Leal and Sydney Cox. 
Hey, be safe, y'all, and we'll see y'all next time.